Then again, Jesus, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there's a stench because he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I've said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this 11th chapter of John is another of those stories told only by John, not Mark, not Matthew, not Luke, uniquely John's understanding of this important event. Let me remind you how the story goes. Word came to Jesus up in Galilee that his friend Lazarus was very sick. Jesus loved Mary, Martha and Lazarus. John writes, nonetheless, he delayed for two days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go again to Judea. Only John tells us that Jesus and the disciples were in Jerusalem more than one time. The synoptic gospel writers tell us only one big trip to Jerusalem the last week of our Lord. John says he was there on three different Passover occasions, three different years, and that's where we get the idea that his ministry lasted three years. Let's go again to Judea. One of the disciples said to him, Lord, they are trying to stone you to death. I know, he said, but our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Well, if he's only sleeping, then he shall surely awake again. Well, no, he has died. But I'm going there to awaken him so that you may believe. But Lord, they've been trying to stone you. I know we're going again to Judea. And Thomas said, let's go with him and we'll all die. And so they go. Now, when they get to Bethany, one of the Gospels says it's about three miles from the wall portion of the city of Jerusalem. This one says about two miles from the wall portion of the city of Jerusalem, Martha came running out to meet him. Now, Luke is the one who tells us about an occasion when Jesus was having dinner at the home of Mary, Martha and Lazarus and how Martha was so busy cooking, setting the table, cleaning up, doing all sorts of things. Mary was sitting with the men listening to what Jesus had to say. Martha complained, look at Mary, Lord, she's not helping me. Tell her to help me. Well, no, in fact, Mary has chosen the better portion and it shall not be taken from her. But here in John's account, Martha's the active one. She runs out to meet him. Mary stays in the house grieving. And Martha said, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. Do you believe he will live again? Oh, no, sir. He's been dead four days. Now, this response comes from a very popular belief in the first century that one spirit hovered around the dead body for up to three days trying to re-enter the body. 
But if after three days it was not able to re-enter the body and reactivate, then a person was really dead. And so she says, no, no, you don't understand. He's not just in a coma four days dead. I know, Jesus said, but do you believe he will live again? Now she thinks he's asking, come on, Martha, are you Pharisee or are you Sadducee? Since the book of Daniel, the Pharisees believe in a resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees did not. And she said, oh, well, you know, I'm one of those who believes. I believe he will live again at the end, at the resurrection. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection. As he had said to the woman at the tomb, I am. And in response to her inquiry about that living water, so she would never have to draw again, I am. That's what God had said to Moses at the burning bush. Eye, Asher, Eye, I am who I am. And John adds the ending to these sentences. I am the light. I am the way. I am the vine. I am the resurrection. Do you believe this, Martha? That was a little much for her. But she gave the right answer. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the answer. Let's take a look at this story. First thing I underlined is the part about Jesus weeping. If you grew up in Sunday school classes that made you repeat favored verses of Scripture, first child to raise his or her hand when you were five, six years old, always got to do the shortest one, Jesus wept. And the second one got to do God is love, and the third one was in more trouble. You see? So this is that passage, Jesus wept, and our translation says Jesus began to weep because Jesus understood the smell of death. He understood the smell of death. Nine years ago this month, my father had surgery at MD Anderson Hospital in Houston. The surgeon said we were not successful, we were not able to remove all the malignancy, we will try chemotherapy. He went through miserable chemotherapy and radiation. He did not go into remission. He did not do well. And after a few more weeks of that, MD Anderson Hospital said, he's dying, take him home, call hospice. And he went home to die, but he didn't die in two or three weeks. He lived six more months. My brother and his wife were wonderful. My sister and her husband, wonderful. Gail and I were going down every other weekend on a Thursday late, coming back Saturday late, giving them at least 48 hours respite before they had to take over again. My father's malignancy did a strange thing. It surfaced on his chin, just a little spot at first, and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger until it covered his chin. You ever seen cancer? It's ugly. And it smells. It smells. And every two weeks when we would get down there, the house would smell worse. My brother and sister, they were buying candles and candles and all these wonderful aromatic candles helped a little bit. Vanilla seemed to have a more overpowering smell than anything else, but it couldn't drive it away. It just got Death always smells. It smells of defeat. It smells of end. It smells of frustrated dreams, of hopes, of relationships. Death 
smells. And Jesus understood that very well, but death is powerfully strong. And he wept with his friends. He wept with them. Number two, twice here John says that Jesus was deeply moved, disturbed. The word in Greek literally means agitated, angry. And through the centuries, scholars have tried to figure out, what was he so angry about? What was happening here? One great scholar, Rudolf Bultmann, says, he was angered because finally Mary has come out, and Mary and those with her do not have faith. That's what Rudolf Bultmann thought. They didn't have faith. And Jesus was troubled and angry about that, that after all this time, they still do not have faith as expressed by Martha minutes before they had come out. Uh, Dr. Raymond Brown who taught many years the writings of the community of John at Yale Divinity School says, no, I think he was angry because after all these centuries, sin and death still had such power over God's children. But sin and death still had such power over God's children, and Jesus was angry about that. Dr. Gail O'Day, a very capable woman scholar, says, Well, I think he was angry because he did, in fact, love these two sisters and their brother. These three people were very special to him, and he had a chance to have a very private moment with them at the grave of Lazarus. He had come to raise Lazarus from the dead. And suddenly here were all these strangers that a moment that should have been private was not private. There were too many people among the many unbelievers pressing in. An old Dr. C.K. Barrett, the great English and Scottish scholar, wrote, I think it was the unfaith of Mary and the others because they were dealing with death as people who have no hope. Friday, Gail and I have another marriage anniversary. We're racking up a long line of these. There were folks in my little church that thought, this will never last. You're too young. 46 years we've been doing this. 46 years we've been married. I remember that day very well. It was pouring down rain. It had been pouring down rain all week. You know, what was forecast for us last week that we didn't get. Our weathermen last weekend were saying it's going to rain Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. We had wonderful clouds. No rain, no rain, no rain, no rain. Finally, early Friday morning, we got a little. Well, guess what? At Carthage, Texas, that March, it rained. Day and night, it rained. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Thursday, wedding day, Thursday, still pouring down rain. We're getting married at 7 o'clock. I have a funeral at 2. One of my older men, Leonard Lawless, had died, and the funeral was set for 2 o'clock. The little church was filled with his friends and family, and then it was time to go out into that rain to the cemetery just outside the windows of the church. Everybody was hunkered down under umbrellas. It was still pouring. I got out there to the side of the grave and could see that the wooden box into which they were about to lower the casket had floated up to the top. There were four feet of muddy water in that grave, and the wooden box had floated out. The funeral directors, one at each corner, pushed this wooden box back down into the water so that we could lower that casket into four feet of muddy water. 
when I'd read the appropriate scriptures and said the right prayers, people started leaving and I went back in the church to clean up. I was the custodian as well as the pastor. And so I was sweeping up flower petals and picking up all these things so that we could have a wedding at seven o'clock that night. But as I worked, I said, God, we did it better, didn't we? We did it better today, didn't we? Eighteen months before, I'd had my first funeral with these folks. And they had opened the casket at the end of the service. And as people came by, they were fainting and falling out in the floor. Funeral director popping little vials of, of, of smelling salts under their nose to get them back on their feet. I talked to one of my professors. How can I do something about this? And he said, well, you don't wait till somebody dies. You start doing it now. Use your Sunday nights to talk about how people of faith face death. They grieve. They cry. They hurt. But they do not act as people who have no hope. And that afternoon, 18 months later, our song leader, a man retired from United Gas named Jubal Griffiths, stood up and led our congregation in a powerful hymn. Our pianist played with all the power and gusto that she could that hymn. Our people sang that hymn. We affirmed our faith. We had a responsive reading. We offered proper prayers. And we went out into that rain as people who have hope, who have hope, who do believe. So if Jesus was angry that they had no hope, or at least were dealing with death as if they had no hope, I believe he would have felt better about my little church. We were doing better. Number three, I'm the resurrection, Martha. If one believes in me, even though he were dead, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Wednesday morning, I started out to make our hospital calls. That's usually my hospital day every week. And I was on the way to the first of these hospitals, had my radio on, when they said, well, famous people born today. And one of them was Johann Sebastian Bach. And then they played one of his great compositions. I heard just a little bit of it before I got to the hospital. And then when I got back in my car, they were playing another of his compositions. And when I got out of the second hospital, they were still playing a third of his compositions. And when I got back to the church after the third hospital, I turned on my radio in my office and they were playing more of Bach's music. And so I turned on my computer and I put his name in Google search. And there was a whole lot of things about Johann Sebastian Bach. This would have been his 322nd birthday last Wednesday. When he was nine years old, his mother died. When he was 10 years old, his father died. But he was not without love. He had a family that scooped him up, took care of him, fed him, clothed him, educated him, loved him, took him to church. When he was 18 years old, he was offered his first big job as a church organist, Arnstadt. He was there five years. He was offered a bigger opportunity at Weimar, stayed nine years. He went to Kuthen, six years. And then he was offered a prestigious job in Leipzig, and he was there the last 27 years of his life. He wrote the Brandenburg Concerto. It was so well received, he wrote another Brandenburg Concerto, the St. Matthew Passion. 
the Mass in B minor, one of the greatest ever composed. More than 200 of his cantatas are still played and sung regularly. And at the bottom of each of his compositions, he had in German initials, to Jesus, Savior. If he varied at all, it was, to God be the glory. To Jesus, Savior, to God be the glory. Who just kept on composing and kept on playing the Sunday service week after week after week until he died. I'm the resurrection. Those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. Do you believe this, Martha? I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God. That's the right answer. That's the right answer. Mark says that was the answer given by Simon Peter up at Caesarea Philippi. I've told you what a beautiful spot that is. The snows that fall go underground through limestone, as they do down in parts of Texas. They bubble up at Caesarea Philippi, a spring that produces hundreds of thousands of gallons of water every month. Clear, clear trout this long swimming in the clear water. Some of the biggest fig trees I've ever seen in my life grow right there by this fountain. And these fountains bubbling up become the four waters of the Jordan River. They flow southward as Jordan River create the Sea of Galilee, flow southward out of there all the way down to the Dead Sea. It was a remote place that Jesus had taken his disciples and asked, who do the people think I am? I heard a guy the other day say, you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Really? I heard one say, you're Elijah, that surely as great as you are, the Messiah is on the way. Really? I heard a guy say the other day, he wasn't sure, but he thinks you're a really great prophet. And Jesus said, who do you think I am? And old Simon blurted out, I believe you are the Messiah of God. And he said, you are right. And flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you what, I'm not going to call you Simon anymore. I'm going to call you Petros, Peter the rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church. The affirmation, you see, that Jesus is the Messiah of God. That's the right answer. Heidi Neumark is a Lutheran preacher in Manhattan, in downtown New York City. She wrote recently about being in an emergency room in a huge New York City hospital on Saturday night, trying to get help for her mother. Heidi's mother is in the latter stages of dementia, and now some of the medications being given to her were causing her to hallucinate, even to the point that she might accidentally hurt herself. Uh, she thought she was in a dark dungeon. She thought there were animals after her. Heidi said, I didn't know what else to do but to rush her to the emergency room and see if we could get these medications stabilized somehow. And she said, it was a zoo when we got there. That one fellow was going out to empty a bedpan and somebody else came from behind a curtain and bumped his arm and urine went everywhere on the foot of the cot where they'd put my mother. And my mother still thinks wild animals are after her and she's locked up in a dungeon somewhere. It went on and on. And I'm thinking, I got to preach in the morning at 830 and again at 11. 
And I was supposed to be preaching about that experience of transfiguration up on the mountain. When Jesus took Peter, James, and John and went up onto a mountain, the disciples were exhausted. They started dozing off to sleep when suddenly Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothing gleamed startlingly white. And as they looked a little more carefully, there standing with him, Moses, whom they believed had written the Torah, those first five scrolls, and Elijah, the prophet who was to come again just before Messiah. They didn't know what to do, so Peter said, Hey, why don't we build a booth for each one of you and just stay up here in this wonderful place? But God spoke and said, This is my beloved son. Moses and Elijah were talking about Jesus' departure, the Bible says. And that word for departure is the same word you have in the Septuagint to mean exodus. As Moses led the children out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery to a new beginning, so now God had sent his son Jesus to lead us Gentiles out of our slavery to sin and death to whole new beginnings. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And Heidi wrote, As the hours went on that long night, and I, knowing I was to preach at 8.30, I kept remembering how many years I had told my people, I don't know what to do up on the mountain. I've never seen Jesus in a gleamingly white robe. I've never seen with my eyes Moses and Elijah. I'm ready to go back to the bottom of the hill. That's where I've seen lives transformed. But this year, in that lonely place, with so many people around us, I wanted to stay upon the mountain. I needed to be upon the mountain and to hear Almighty God say, This is my son. Listen to him. And if I do, I will hear him say, I am the resurrection and I am life.